This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare, Steve Love along with Thomas Miller. And welcome. We're delighted you're here today. We feel like we're going to have a great show So, Thomas, how are you doing today? I am so excited because we get to go running back out to stores and restaurants and all over the place. Well, I hope you wear a mask. Hold on. (laughs) I know the governor didn't mandate it, but I recommend you wear a mask, and I recommend that you uh, practice safe distancing and wash your hands and good health habits. So, you know, it's it's great that uh, things are beginning to open up, but We've got to also use what I call a little bit of common sense. You know, when you go on summer vacation and if you don't take your pets, which of course is a rarity, you and I remember days when you would take your pet to the vet or someplace now like these pet lodges that they have, and you come back about seven or 10 days later and your pet feels so caged up and all they want to do is just run and play and do all the things that they love and know. Don't we feel like that right now, kind of? Oh, absolutely. People have had cabin fever, and that's certainly understandable, and people want to get out. But we've got to do it practicing good, safe health habits. We've got to make sure if you're going to go out, please wear a mask. I know it's not mandated. I know it's not, you know, you have to do it, but it's just good common sense. It's good for you. It's good for your neighbor. Also, uh, wash your hands. Use disinfectant. Do the things that we should be doing, not only because of the COVID-19, but because of other types of viruses. All right. So the numbers from what I've seen are not, you know, we wouldn't say that they're in a downward trajectory as in looking like a ladder leaning up against a wall by any means. They're more, more or less flat. So not a lot has changed between a week or two weeks ago and Friday when things opened back up. So what are you hearing and seeing from the hospitals and from the medical community? You know, I think the main thing we're watching is not only the number of cases. As we do more testing, Thomas, we're going to have more cases. That's understood. What's important is to look at what are the hospitalizations and of the people that are in the hospital, how many can be treated uh, without going to the uh, intensive care unit, and how many people can be treated, hopefully, and not need a ventilator. And so that's what we've really got to watch as we open things back up, especially because of the incubation period. So, you know, you're looking at 8, 10, 12 days into May to see, are we seeing any increase in hospitalizations? That's one of the key metrics. Yeah, and this is a, kind of a booger, too, because of that long incubation period, right? We won't know instantly. No, we won't know instantly, and that's why it's important that we carefully look at the metrics, we carefully understand as we gradually open things up, what is the impact? You know, Thomas, one thing that uh, could kind of be a guide for us is Georgia. You know, they opened up much more than we opened up, but they did it about a week earlier. So if we kind of look at Georgia, look at their metrics and see what's happening, it might be an indicator for us. 
All right. All eyes on Hotlanta then and uh, the rest of the state. We'll, we'll do that. Good advice. Okay. How is this affecting the medical community in general as far as things like either doctor's office visits? Is that going to open back up more? And what about elective surgeries? I know there are a lot of knees and joints and rotator cuffs and all kinds of things out there that people would love to get fixed. Is this a good time to think about that? Absolutely. In fact, uh, I know this may sound ironic. It's probably the very best time to look at that because hospitals are being extremely careful. Hospitals are looking at elective surgeries as they begin to open those back up, and they're going to test the patients, and they want to protect the patient. They want to protect the healthcare worker, and they want to make sure everything is very sterile, and they want to make sure that no one catches COVID-19 from an elective surgery. That's so important. And hospitals are going out of their way to ensure that they do everything to protect everyone involved. In fact, I think if you're going to do elective surgery, check with your uh, physician. This probably would be a very good time to do it. The other thing we need to think in terms of There are now going to be, because of the executive order of the governor, there are going to be physicians that are going to be opening back up their private practices, and they're going to have, hopefully, the PPE, personal protective equipment, the disinfectants, and all of the things like social distancing in their waiting rooms as they schedule appointments to make it safe. But hopefully we can begin the process of getting back to normal. You know, I heard an interview that was on, it was the daily podcast that's put out by the New York Times. And and the interview was from Sunday a week ago, I believe. But basically it was talking about this dance of kind of, you know, two steps forward, one step back, one step back, two steps forward. It's like this, you know, we're just going to have to see, aren't we? Yeah, we really are. And what we want to do is do it in such a way that we can measure the progress because the last thing we want to do is to take that big step forward and have to take four or five steps backward because we have uh, increase not only in the infection rate, but in the hospitalizations and unfortunately deaths. Steve, where are we with testing now? You know, I've talked to the experts, uh, especially the public health experts, and we need to do a lot more testing. We really, as we open things up, Thomas, need to know what are the results of this. You know, you have the incubation period. And the public health people will tell you, you know, maybe you do a lot of antibody testing, which we know is not as accurate uh, as, say, the swab test. We need to know where we've got hot spots. We need to know where we need to focus. I'll give you a great example. You know, the meatpacking plants, just about everywhere there were meatpacking plants. Unfortunately, if someone got COVID-19, it spread pretty quickly. You need to know these things as you open different businesses back up so you can respond accordingly and you can contain it. If you don't do that, the fear is, There could be a second wave. Well, let's go to an expert with this who I'm sure has been keeping himself abreast of the testing process. 
We have Dr. David Winter coming up, no stranger to many of you. He's been on Channel 8 WFAA locally on the news doing segments for Baylor, Scott & White for decades. And he's a primary care physician, practicing primary care physician, and he's in leadership with Baylor, Scott & White. So we have a great resource here to tell us about what it looks like possibly for doctor's offices to start opening up. That will be coming up in our next segment. And we're going to parlay that with a really insightful interview that we recorded. Now, this one was recorded before the virus hit about what happens inside the emergency room and trauma area of the hospital. So we're going to talk about that. And then a very important last segment on the show today about gun safety. Especially gun safety with children. And that's all coming up next on the human side of healthcare. Stay with us here on 1080 KRLD and radio.com. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love, along with Thomas Miller. You know, as COVID-19 continues to influence our lives, things are beginning to open back up. People are going to certainly come to hospitals for elective surgeries. People are going to see their primary care physicians. And so we thought we'd talk a little bit about that today. We couldn't have a better person than Dr. David Winter. Dr. David Winter, as you know, is board certified. He does work uh, with Baylor Scott and White. Uh, he is affiliated with the Baylor Scott and White Institute for Rehabilitation. He's part of the Baylor University Medical Center and also the Baylor Scott and White Heart and Vascular Hospital. Dr. Winter, it's a real pleasure to have you with us. Welcome. Steve, I'm glad to help and glad to talk about our plans for getting back to the new normal that we're anticipating. So as you begin to see patients and treat patients, are you going to do some of that in person? Are you going to do it using some kind of virtual or telemedicine, Dr. Winter? What, what are your suggestions? Our main focus going forward is to be safe, safe for all the patients, safe for the community, safe for our healthcare workers. So yes, things will be different. We've been doing lots of virtual healthcare in the last month. Virtual healthcare is telephone calls, video visits, uh, electronic visits through the emails, um, and that's worked very well. I, in fact, have been doing almost all of my visits over the last three weeks with video visits, and the patients are actually thrilled that they can contact me and talk about their issues and go over their medications and their concerns without having to come to the office. So that's been a new normal for us. I suspect we're going to do a larger proportion of our visits like that in the future from now on. Yeah, that's a very good point. I was talking to a friend of mine that does a lot of work in telehealth and telemedicine and said, we're learning a lot from this COVID-19 or how we can use it in the future. For your patients, when they go and begin to open up a little more, go to the grocery store, go to retail stores, what are your thoughts about the health precautions they should take, like wearing a mask? Well, this virus is not going to go away as we try to readapt to the new normal, I call it. Uh, so, yes, we're going to have to do things differently when we go anywhere outdoors. And the same in the doctor's office. We want people to 
feel like they're safe in the exam rooms, the procedure rooms, in the hospital when they come in. So you're going to see everyone is going to be masking. You're going to see everyone is going to try to be six feet apart when we can. Uh, we've stopped doing uh, signatures for different authorizations. We're doing all of this now verbally or online. So a lot of differences going forward. We've got a new program called Safe Care we're rolling out, which we think is, again, a new way to address this viral pandemic that's still there. How can we get back to taking care of people in a way that's comfortable and safe for them, also safe for the healthcare workers? Well, it'll be a whole lot of changes going forward, and we're confident this is going to make healthcare safer and more accessible to patients than it's been in the last couple of months. You know, I had a mother call me, and of course, I'm not a physician, but I work in healthcare, but on the business side. But I actually had a mother call me yesterday and said, I want to ask your opinion. My kids want to take swim lessons. I've done research, and water, you know, doesn't have any more impact than anything else. What would be if you had a mother call you that's got a couple of kids that are going to take swim lessons? in the, say, the next 30 days, what would be your advice? It'd be the same as um, kids or adults, for that matter, who want to get out and exercise with uh, groups of people. We need to distance ourselves, uh, be six feet away when you're near people or, or when you can put on a mask. Now, in swimming, you want to make sure that you're going to be in a pool that's got chlorine or whatever disinfectant they use. Then I would also try to be apart from people. You know, when you're breathing in and out as you're swimming, you don't want to be right next to the next person uh, so the six feet of distancing there is important. But yeah, I think swimming exercise could be fine, but we need to understand we need to keep ourselves away from other people. This virus is spread through the air. It's also spread through touch. So anything that you touch that somebody else has touched, you need to wash your hands or disinfect them before you touch your face. We all touch our face, we're told, 200 times a day. I've been surprised with that number, but as I watch myself, I'm sometimes rubbing my eye or scratching my nose. That's the way you spread the virus. The virus on your hand can't get in your body until you touch your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. So keep that thought in mind as you're out getting back into the public again. Dr. Winter, this is Thomas Miller. You mentioned something kind of ominous almost when you said so much shifting to telemedicine. How do you see the clinics structuring that in the future? In other words, who comes to the office and who goes online? We're encouraging people now, if they're sick, to call in first. If you've got symptoms that might suggest the coronavirus, we really don't want you to come into the office and contaminate the healthcare workers, the office space, the physicians. If you do that, we have to shut down for two weeks. So call if you have those symptoms that might be suggestive. If you're not sure, just call anyway. And if they're symptomatic or suggestive for coronavirus, we're going to send you to a special area where you can be tested safely there. And then if you're negative, then we can get back to business. For routine visits, though, if you have no symptoms, we think we can see you safely in the office setting. We've got the, the waiting room set up differently right now. We're all going to be wearing masks. We're going to take you back one at a time. A lot of things we're doing are going to be very safe, including enhanced disinfectants after you've left of the entire office setting and the exam rooms. So we've been putting a lot of thought into this for the last month. We're prepared to get back out there and take care of the people for what they need. How do you see flowing through the clinic? I think that's one of the biggest angst people probably have is you go to the doctor's office and typically you wait in a waiting room for you know an X period of time and there's that risk that you might be in there with somebody who coughs or sneezes. Houston, we've got a problem. <laughs> that would be a problem, Thomas. Well, you've seen what's been done at a lot of the big box uh, chain stores out there. You don't go in unless you can be six feet apart. Otherwise, you'll wait out in your car, and we will call you or text you when it's time for you to come in. 
We're doing the same pattern ourselves. Our waiting rooms will be sparsely populated. We want we don't want you to wait in the doctor's office. We want you to then get back into the room where you need to visit the healthcare provider, the APP or the physician. So it'll be a different setup. We'll all be wearing masks. We're not going to shake hands or hug ever again, uh, at least in the near future. But we'll be able to take care of you safely, we think. Uh, in fact, I think if you can go to a grocery store and get out of there without getting the virus, we're going to be even safer than that in a doctor's office because we're very attuned to this virus and what it can do and what it cannot do. When you say you're going to wear a mask, I'm not talking about the patients now. I'm talking about you or your staff. I'm just curious, will that be an N95 mask or will it, it be some other type of surgical mask? That's an important distinction. The N95 mask is a, is a very successful mask that prevents the virus from getting into you. Now, we know that most of the viral spread to the air is from somebody who has the virus and coughs and sneezes. So if those folks have any type of mask on, that limits that airborne production. So the mask that we will wear in the office typically is going to be the surgical mask or a cloth mask that we wash uh, at least every day. It'll help prevent that happening. But those have been shown actually in national studies now to be as protective, except for the highly susceptible folks that are doing things around the mouth or the throat, ENT operations, for example, anesthesiologists, you have to intubate people before an operation. Those folks need an N95 mask. The rest of us really don't need those masks, and they're still in short supply. So which type of mask is the most effective for us? So, right, we go to the store, we can't find a mask. What do we do? I would first emphasize that any mask is better than no mask at all. You may have seen a, a story I did about this a couple weeks ago where I was wearing a bandana from the old cowboy days, and that is effective. The cloth masks that the surgeons wear in the operating rooms, I'm sorry, the paper masks that the surgeons wear in the operating rooms, those are effective. Uh, you can have a homemade mask. A patient of mine actually made a lot of cloth masks from her husband's boxer underwear. I love to tell that story because the first question I asked was, were they clean underwear? And of course they were. And I wear those when I go out in public. So any mask is good. You want to make sure that it helps to fit your face nicely. You want minimal airflow around the sides of the mask. If you're out in public with a mask and someone has the virus or the virus in the air and walk through that, it's not likely to get through the mask, but it may be on the outside of your mask. So when you take that mask off, don't touch the middle of the mask, particularly on the outside. Take the mask off with the earpieces or the ties in the back on the same manner because that mask could be protecting you. But if you get the virus on your hands from the mask and then touch your face, you've got the virus. Governor Abbott has said, let's go into phase one. That happened on Friday. Are we ready, do you think? I hope we're all ready, but I think we need to listen to what the governor is saying and the president is saying and the healthcare professionals are saying because it's not going to be business as usual. The virus is not going to go away anytime soon, so we must be very careful going out there. But I think if we take precautions, I think we can be safe. But we can't do things like we did before. We've got to be very careful because this virus, again, is extremely contagious. And then, more importantly, it can hide in people who have minimal symptoms or no symptoms. But we're going to have to keep doing those precautions now for some time. Dr. David Winter, Baylor Scott & White, a longtime friend to anyone in the DFW Metroplex who has ever watched Channel 8. 
But now he's made it to the big time. He has been on the human side of healthcare. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Dr. Winter. Now, when we come back, we're going to take a trip down to South Dallas and check in over at Methodist Dallas and talk to the head of their trauma department, Dr. Daryl Amos. That's coming up next here on the human side of healthcare. Also, be sure to check out Dr. Winter's full episode. He talked more about masks, etc., on our podcast at the human side of healthcare on all the major podcast players. We will be right back. The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller. And welcome back to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love, along with Thomas Miller. And we're going to talk today, and I hope our listeners really will listen to this segment. We're going to talk about trauma and trauma programs. We could not have a better expert with us than Dr. Daryl Amos. He's chief of trauma for Methodist Health System. And Methodist Health System is a level one trauma center. Dr. Amos, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Before we really get into a trauma discussion, you and I were chatting. Can you talk a little bit about the origin of trauma and trauma care? Sure. Trauma care goes back to the turn of the century, actually. The American College of Surgeons' oldest committee is the Committee on Trauma. And in 1992, they formed it in 1922, excuse me, they formed it to take care of the injured. We had about a 60-year period or so where trauma was being neglected. And then there was a book that came out, a report from the federal government that showed how many people we were actually losing to traffic accidents. That then spurred the creation of trauma centers, which over the next 20 years developed. As I mentioned, in the 70s, there was an orthopedic surgeon by the name of Dr. James Steiner, who had been flying his plane into rural parts of Nebraska to take care of folks with orthopedic needs. Uh, He was returning from California with his friend, with his family, excuse me, and they hit a a low line level of trees and basically crashed in a Nebraska cornfield. Uh, His wife was killed on impact, but his children were alive. He was badly injured. Uh, He made his way to a deserted road and ran across some uh, travelers who then picked him up. And his family was ultimately transferred to a small rural hospital. Uh, He noted that the care that he had provided, the first aid that had been given to his children at the crash site was superior to the care that he received into the hospital. And so this was the genesis and the birth of the idea that we would take the principles of trauma like had been done for advanced cardiac life support, and we would create the ATLS program of the Committee on Trauma. You know, when we talk in terms of trauma, and I know many of the listeners understand emergency rooms and why they go, but let's focus a little on trauma care, especially when you think in terms of a level one trauma center, which is the most intense treatment you can receive, like at Methodist Dallas. This is unlike any other discipline in medicine. Would you agree? I would. Um, Every three years, our trauma hospital undergoes a very intensive uh, verification process where uh, investigators from the uh, Committee on Trauma 
uh, headquarters come in and they review. We go over all of our outcomes, our patient data, um, any kinds of events that could help us improve our processes. And so when you say a level one trauma center, you're really describing a comprehensive program that's dedicated to the care of the injured patient. We spend um, a lot of time uh, going back and looking at uh, events to make sure that each year we improve on the process. So it's a very fine-tuned operation, unlike any other system in the healthcare uh, organization that you'll find in the country. You know, the name of this show is The Human Side of Healthcare, as you know, but let's kind of focus on the human side of trauma care. Can you elaborate thinking in terms of from the patient and from the caregivers? Sure. Uh, One of the first things that I always tell my students and my colleagues, uh, the other people that assist us in trauma care, is that I imagine that when that patient comes to our ER door, it could be one of my own family members. And so uh, one of the things that we really stress is this is something that could happen to any of us. We look at just recent events. And, you know, there was an event of a helicopter crash by a very famous basketball player. We see motor vehicle accidents and all other sorts of things that are going on around the world today. And I really feel that trauma touches the humanity side of medicine. We are meeting people that we've never met before, but who are often in the most productive years of their lives. And we're making a difference. We're, we're allowing people that were normally living a life disease-free to continue on their life at the repair of their injury. You know, the Methodist health system has always had a very long-term commitment to serving the needs and the patients of Southern Dallas. When you think in terms of having a level one trauma center in Oak Cliff, that's an integral part of that commitment. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. When you come in with uh, an injury from trauma, we we don't have the luxury of going through the process of getting insurance pre-verification and uh, checking to see whether or not you're able to pay for the care. We treat everybody that comes to our door the same. We don't know whether we have the president of a corporation or somebody who's unemployed. Uh, We treat people from homeless people that are victims of um, auto pedestrian collisions. We treat young kids that are involved in gang violence. We treat elderly patients that fall at home. So we have a wide span of patients that we treat. And basically it is once again, that human touch that comes in of just a person in need coming into our emergency room and we begin the process there. So it's very different than anything else that you'll see in medicine. You know, I've lived in a lot of different states, and I've seen a lot of trauma centers. I'd have to say overall Texas does a pretty good job on coordinating trauma. And You know, when you think in terms of trauma cases, you know, that fateful night in July when the police officers were shot in Dallas, all the trauma centers responded in a very positive way. And even if the trauma center didn't treat a policeman, they were there to coordinate and help treat other trauma. So when you think in terms of trauma cases and over your experience, are there any patient stories that really stick with you or stand out? Sure. Um, I have a library of them, but um, in particular, we were just talking. um, We had a young man who worked for uh, the Brinks Company who Uh, was um, assaulted by uh, one of his roommates, a very bad 
uh, injury created by a shotgun. He came in um, really on the brink of death. And the moment he came in, our trauma center mobilized. And uh, we, this was one of those cases where he was so severely injured that we didn't have time to really do our normal ER workup. He went straight to the operating room. And um, after about eight hours of a very intensive operation, uh, he returned to the recovery room. And he would have several operations after that. But um, he made a full recovery and actually came back to the trauma center at one of our symposiums and, and, and basically gave his own testimony. And it showed how somebody could be on the precipice of death and come back and return to society to continue to be productive and live a normal life. You know, it's amazing to me, not only the good work that all the trauma centers do, but how you coordinate also with the EMTs and how the emergency personnel, and I remember a story about five years ago, I was at a trauma event, and there was a lady who was in Johnson County, and she was on the way to take her dog to the veterinarian, Uh, and she got distracted by the dog, and she ran a stop sign and was actually hit by a fire truck. And, of course, the firemen immediately started first aid and administering to her, and they had to airlift her to a level one trauma center. And she was in a coma, she said, for 14 days. And when she was on the road to recovery and came out of that, she thanked the trauma care physician for saving her life. And his response was, those firemen saved your life. Can you comment on how you coordinate and work so well with emergency personnel? Sure. The first responders are, um, they're the Marines. They're out there in the fields. They go into very sometimes hostile situations to bring people out. We have a term in trauma called scoop and run. They get in, they scoop them, and then they bring them in. A lot of our patients come via care flight or some of the other helicopter agencies, and they go to rural areas. They fly in and land, and they bring those patients in. The communication between us and our um, first responders is crucial. And uh, a lot of times we get information on those patients in the radio, and they actually administer treatment there on the scene and en route. Uh, as of late, um, our, ambul- our air ambulances are carrying blood and other life-saving um, uh, drugs on their copter, on their on the birds, as they say, uh, en route to the facility. You know, we've talked a lot. You gave a great uh, history of trauma. But as you look in your crystal ball and you look at the future of trauma care, do you have thoughts and ideas of what it may look like in years to come? I do. The um, I sit on one of the national committees that looks at disaster. And when we think about events like Hurricane Katrina or, um, God forbid, a plane wreck or, God forbid, some of the terrorist attacks and some of the active shooting events that come around the country, it has it is increased our, our awareness and heightened our awareness of the need to be even more organized. And so now the trauma world is in the process of organizing into a more seamless unit where we communicate not just from hospital to hospital, but from city to city, state to state, 
um, and it'll probably reach the federal government. So I think the trends that are going on right now are preparing us for what we think will happen in the future. And part of the direction is coming from our military operations. When you look at what has gone on in a lot of the military events that are going around the world, uh, we have taken information from our military operations and how they manage injured and wounded soldiers. And we're now implementing and integrating that into civilian trauma centers. And it is our intense hope that none of you listening to this ever end up in a trauma facility for the virus or for any other reason. But after listening to Dr. Amos, isn't it refreshing to hear the level of care that would be provided and the quality of people providing that care? And speaking of quality people and programs, when we come back, Dr. Dan Guzman of Cook's Children's Healthcare System has put a program together to help families stay safe regarding firearms in the home. Some potentially life-saving tips for your family next on the Human Side of Healthcare. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environments. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare, Steve Love, along with Thomas Miller. You know, as we continue to think in terms of COVID 19 and people being at home, especially our children, we want to keep them safe. We couldn't have a better guest than Dr. Daniel Guzman who is the Medical Director for Emergency Transport Services at Cook Children's Healthcare System. He's also an attending physician at Cook Children's Medical Center Emergency Department. And something we're going to talk about a lot today is AIM for Safety, which is Firearm Awareness. He's the Program Director. Dr. Guzman, Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you, Stephen and Thomas. I appreciate the time to be able to talk about this important subject. You know, when we think in terms of children that are at risk, uh, especially around firearms, with COVID-19 and kids being at home, and unfortunately, parents being at home that could get frustrated, et cetera, and family violence, as an emergency room physician, can you tell us some of the risk that we've got with children? Definitely the, the landscape has changed quite a bit since uh, now we have kids at home and the frustrations of you know having to, to teach our kids as well. I have three kids at home that are ages 6, 8, and 10, and it can be quite challenging. So I have to go off to all the teachers out there who do this on a daily basis. Uh, but to be put in this new role can be definitely difficult uh, for families. Uh, it's already a stressful time with, um, you know, not being at work and then our kids at home. And then you have all these other things that are in and around the house that put our kids at risk. And we think about those on a daily basis. I think the, the vast majority of us, whether it's, you know, walking across the street, wearing a helmet when we're riding a bike, um, but there's some of those dangers that are inside the home that, that sometimes we don't think about that we feel as parents, uh, that are there to protect us, but actually put our kids at risk. And so the, the biggest thing that comes to mind. And the reason why I started with this program was because of firearms. And so we, we as 
families and parents, we want to protect our children, protect our home. Um, but those guns that we put in our homes also can be extremely dangerous. And so we're not here to you know, discuss, and I'm not here to advocate that anybody should or shouldn't have a gun. We are here to discuss how we can make you safer. Just like if you have a pool at home, we would discuss, you know, pool fences, uh, alarms, wearing life jackets, those things. Uh, and so how do you make yourself safer at home uh, if you do have a firearm? So let me ask you this, kids in different age groups, so from a developmental standpoint, does that add additional risk? It definitely does. When you when you think about um, the younger population, our, our preschool children, um, they're explorers, they're observers. They like to you know get into things. They're curious about what's going on, but they're not also always going to listen to what we have to tell them. And what we and when we say don't do this, um, there are the odds of, of them heeding that warning every single time. They may do they may do the right thing 99 times out of 100. It's that one time that 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 really causes the the destruction in the family, and and so that's what we're trying to prevent. You know, the title Aim for Safety really caught my eye. Can you expand on what is Aim for Safety? So Aim for Safety is a program that we started here at Cook. I've been working at this for about three years now. Um, and because I have children at home and because I own a firearm and all the things that I see in the ER over the last 20 years, um, I felt like we needed to do more. Um, we needed to, to, to get out there and, and grab some grab parents' attention. And, and I think Aim for Safety does that. You know, just, just playing off the words, uh, what we're doing is we're shooting right down for to keep families safe at home uh, and educate as many people as, as we can without any political ties whatsoever. Our goal is to educate families, make them more aware about what the possibilities of, of having a firearm in the home can bring and then how, how do you make yourself safer. So that's our main goal at this point. And you do research. I know you do surveys. You try to get feedback from people. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so we we try to go out as, into many places as we can. I, I'm a regular attend, attendee at Bayfest, uh, and you know, trying to just bring awareness to the to the issue. And and part of that is, you know, I think we all feel really comfortable at home. That's that's one place where where we feel safe uh, most of the time. And, and so when when you're at home, you know, you, you may have a firearm that you don't put away because you feel oh, I'm safe here, and it's it's you know up in the closet, my kids can't find it. Um, but that's when you're most at, at, at danger, uh, and that's when your kids are, are, are likely going to get into some trouble. Um, and so what we try to do with Aim for Safety and the, and the research part of this is we bring families and their kids into the uh, into the hospital setting or into a setting, uh, and we try to mimic the, the home setting as best we can. But we, we allow the children to find three non-functional firearms, and parents are watching live in another room, uh, and we want to see what their kids are going to do. Um, the, the vast majority of these families have firearms that are unsecured and loaded at home. And so they're at the most risk at that point. And so um, our feeling uh, is that if we can show a parent uh, and, and kind of evoke that emotional, visceral response of, oh my gosh, my child just picked up a gun. And we've talked about this a thousand times, uh, how, how, to, how to handle that situation. And they did it anyway in that setting. Uh, I think we can make people change their attitudes uh, and potentially be a little bit safer at home. So let me switch gears just a little bit and ask your advice. You say you own uh, firearms. Is it best to have the firearm in a secure place and the bullets in another locked secure place? What are your thoughts on that to help parents know that they really do need to be careful? 
Yeah, you know, the gold standard would be that, you know, you have your firearm, it's unloaded, and it's in one uh, locked uh, box or safe, and then you have your ammunition in another locked box uh, separate from uh, the the actual firearm. And so uh, we, we want to put as many barriers between a child finding a gun and being able to marry those two to have that accident or, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, have a suicide attempt. And so I think the more vigilant we are at home uh, in doing that, the better. Now, I understand that people feel that they, they may need a firearm for safety. Uh, and so I, you know, my, my mantra is I'm going to meet you wherever you're at. Let's just, whatever we can do to make you safer, uh, let's do that. But the gold standard would be separating those two. Um, and so that you can't put them together so easily as a, as a, from a child standpoint and, and injure yourself. You know, the aim for safety program, uh, on the firearm awareness I know you're at Cook Children's, and I know you're focusing on children, but it sounds like there's definitely some lessons to be learned for adults also. You know, when you look at the study, it's actually not a study on the children as much as it is, it's more of a study on adults and changing their behavior. Um, we, we do observations on the children and what they do and, and what, you know, what they encounter in the room. But our main focus is if we can get the parents to make a change, uh, that's the important thing. When you look at studies uh, that have been done over the years, you can teach kid children in a, in a half-day session, you know, to uh, not not to pick up a gun or how to handle a gun, uh, but when you put them in a real-life scenario, they all often don't do the right thing. And so I want parents to understand that because of just developmental age of, of, of our children, uh, that doesn't change from much from one child to another as they develop from the ages of, you know, one to, to 12, um, that puts them at risk. It's not any issue with a child. It's more, it's, it's something that they're just, it, it's part of who they are. Uh, and we have to be able to recognize that and address that uh, to keep them safe. And I get, it goes across the board injury prevention, you know, bike safety and wearing a seat belt and, and definitely, you know, uh, water safety, making sure our kids are doing the right thing there. But it's one of those things that um, it's really important um, that we recognize that as parents and understand the risk that's there uh, and then appropriately respond to that risk for our children. Dr. Guzman, it's been a real pleasure to have you with us today. And thank you for your advice related to firearm awareness and firearm safety. And thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Stephen. You know, Thomas, uh, we've heard a lot about trauma today, and we've also heard about gun safety. And of course, when it's misused, it becomes a trauma situation. But you know what? There are other emergencies, and we're finding out people are afraid to call 911. Next week, we're going to talk to an EMS physician about why people are afraid to call 911. This is a riveting interview that you're going to want to hear. So join us next week here on the Human Side of Healthcare, and be sure to catch our podcast. It's on all the major podcast players where we do extended interviews that we don't get to air here on KRLD. Stay safe out there. We'll see you next week on 1080 KRLD and radio.com.